Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, we are going to talk about sometimes there is actually no substitute for having real server hardware. And I'll give you a variety of examples around why that is. And then let's talk about Windows 10 and the IPv6 requirement that suddenly popped up with the build 1809, which is probably installed on your computer already, potentially. And uh, again, I'm going to talk about some examples. We're going to talk about an ACS appliance, so like a pre-built appliance versus you build your own server. And then we'll talk about uh, how about running a virtual machine on a Synology NAS instead of buying real server hardware. And then we'll talk about some alternatives in terms of a cost structure of a real server and what an additional $5,000 can get you. So let's get started. First, I'm going to start off with this whole Windows 10 thing. Around about October 2nd, Microsoft released build 1809 for Windows 10. And there was quite a bit of hubbub over that. In one area, a lot of people had experienced that they would just lose all of their data. Now, I don't have a whole heck of a lot of sympathy for people that don't have viable daily data backups for data that they actually care about, simply because the world has known that they need to back up their data since probably 1993. This is not a new concept. I'm sure it would. I could even go back further than that. But in terms of common knowledge for the average everyday computer user, I know that in 1993, I could say you could talk to just about anybody that actually had a computer and they understood that their data needed to be backed up. So if we've all known about that since this long, well, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for people who have who didn't back up their data and then they went through this process of doing a big change, which is the build 1803 to build 1809 version upgrade for their computer and then experience problems where they lost their data. Uh, I mean, these are just, it's it's something that was a potential to happen. There's no operating system upgrade that's going to be 100% perfect 100% of the time. So that was a sticky rub for many people. And one of the bigger sticky rubs was how Microsoft decided to shove IPv6 down everybody's throat. What in the heck is IPv6? Well, there is this whole thing called the Internet Protocol, and these are IP addresses. And devices, in order to communicate on a network, either need an IP version 4 address or they need an IP version 6 address, and in some cases, both. Now, the, the rub about IPv6 is, yeah, it's actually been around a long time. Microsoft claims, and I say claims because it's baloney, they claim that IPv4 was deprecated, meaning listed as old ancient technology that people should be migrating off of. They claim that that date was sometime in 2011. Well, the problem with that is that still to this day, in the vast majority of locales, 
in the United States. I can't speak to the rest of the world because I don't know. But in the vast majority of locales in the United States, you can't even get an IPv6 address from your ISP, your internet service provider like Spectrum or AT&T. So according to the RFC, which is the specification guidelines for IPv6, you are supposed to obtain an IP address range from your ISP in order to actually have a viable IP range or a usable IP range for your internal network. Now, this is quite a bit of a head turner and uh, or a head spinner for a lot of people who are familiar with networking even on a basic level. And that's because in IPv4, version 4, there has always been what was referred to as the local only IP ranges. And these were IP ranges that a company could know that they could use on the inside of their network without any issues and that they would use a perimeter device using NAT, which is network address translation. And that would allow all the devices on the inside of the network to talk to the internet and back and forth. And that works perfectly, by the way. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that system. And in fact, I would argue that for every business that's out there, they don't even need IPv6 because there is a class A IPv4 address space that would accommodate all of their known devices that they need IP addresses for. I mean, there's effectively no requirement for IPv6 at all. The only requirement that potentially could ever exist for IPv6 would simply be the totality of devices that have addressable IP addresses uh, that are WAN facing on the internet, WAN facing, meaning they directly have a WAN routable IP address. Well, of course, this is one of the problems with IPv6 is that according to the RFC and the reason why you're supposed to approach your ISP to obtain this IP range is because you're supposed to actually take WAN routable IP addresses and assign them to your internal devices. Now you may be thinking, oh my gosh, well wait a second, does that now mean that there is a direct inbound routable IP address to all of my devices that are actually supposed to be secured on the inside of my network but if I give them an IPv6 address, doesn't that mean that there's a direct inbound route to them? Uh, actually, yes, that's true. If the uh, if all of IPv6 is actually set up on your perimeter security appliance. Now, a lot of perimeter security appliances now, they don't even have the ability to NAT IPv4 to IPv6 and back and forth. And again, a lot of ISPs are not producing IPv6 addresses for their customers. They don't have IPv6 spaces and they don't even want to talk about it. Uh, for example, I called Spectrum and said, hey, I need an IPv6 address space. And they said, no. And I said, would you even take it as a feature request? No. <laughs> so, you know, so it's like, uh, okay. Personally, I don't need an IPv6 address. I don't care about IPv6. I don't see a whole lot of usefulness in it because I think it's actually a security risk unless it 
can really be thoroughly implemented and the there's just no requirement for it in the vast majority of businesses there's just no requirement because they all all of every every piece of equipment that they have can be addressed with one of the class A address spaces inside of the IP4 range and then perimeter devices can do natting and they can have all their security and the system works perfectly and wonderfully and it's incredibly robust and incredibly secure when implemented properly. So there really is just no need for IPv6. Okay, well I said all of that to then tell you that what Microsoft did is they decided that they were going to dictate to the world that, oh, guess what? Whether or not you could actually implement IPv6, they were going to make it a requirement. So they went and in build 1809 of Windows 10, they made IPv6 a requirement for the Edge browser to work. And you may think, well, I don't care if the Edge browser works. I'll just use a different browser. Well, it's not that simple. There's an awful lot of things on the computer that utilize the settings that Edge uses in order to connect to the internet. And so if you didn't have an IPv6 address on your computer, well then you couldn't get to the internet with Edge or Outlook or many other things on the computer. So they managed to break a whole lot of things while myself and other Microsoft partners were, you know, hawking up a storm about this. And it has certainly caused a lot of rework to be done on networks where IPv6 had been turned off because IPv6 is deemed to be not needed and anything that is not being directly configured could be argued that it is a security risk. In fact, some years ago at one of the Black Hat conferences, it was deemed by some hackers that unconfigured or auto-configuration specifications for IPv6 addresses on Windows computers led to a security vulnerability. So it was their recommendation that unless you're going to directly configure an IPv6 space on the inside of your network, then you should just have it disabled on your systems. So if you have the auto configuration capability turned on for IPv6, then your edge would work you know, and Outlook and other things would work on it. But I actually ran into some computers where even though it was enabled such that an auto configuration address would be available for IPv6, it still didn't work. So you then have to do kooky things like deploying it at the router level within an IPv6 DHCP pool as well. And now you have the problem that your computer is going to want to preferentially use IPv6 over IPv4. And now things like DNS are going to break on the inside of a network unless you've gone and IPv6 enabled your entire DNS infrastructure. You know, so um, <laughs> it's like a cascade of pain. And Microsoft, they basically paused the update for build 1809 and they are supposed to be unpausing it, meaning it will be starting to be redeployed later this month. And so later in later October 2018, the date for that hasn't yet been published. 
But for right now, it's paused because they were trying to, at the very minimum, figure out why it is that people's data files were getting, you know, deleted, just gone. And beyond that, they wanted to address why Edge just decided to be so completely broken, even with IPv6, you know, with IPv6 off. So uh, anyhow, moving on to the next topic. There's been quite a lot of interesting topics lately uh, that have all kind of pointed to the same theme song. And that theme song is uh, people have a business need, whether it be a, a small business of, you know, eight people or so or, or a large business. So people have a business need that can only really be serviced by having a server. And so then you start looking at the fact that a server project is probably going to be a $30,000 project. It just, it, that's kind of what it ends up looking like when you get a piece of hardware and you have the licensing and you have backups for it and you have implementation labor and all of this, it's like a $30,000 project. Okay. And it's very difficult to get it to be cheaper than that and to still obtain a very low long-term total cost of ownership and have a viable uh, four-hour response time hardware warranty for a duration of seven years. So there is a way that you could maybe get that price down by another $5,000 from the hardware perspective, but you then have to question, all right, what does that have in terms of implications for ongoing labor? Well, I think much of the world needs to be very cognizant of thinking about hard costs and soft costs. And what I see happen rather frequently is people get all obsessed about hard costs. And that is the wrong thing to be obsessed about. Now, hard costs is that expenditure that you make for the physical server and licensing, you know, so it's cost for product. Soft costs are going to be the human labor component. And it's not just human labor for implementation. It's human labor for ongoing maintenance. Now, this is going to be, you, you incur soft costs, whether it's you internally as a full-time employee of the company managing the stuff, or whether you uh, get some external parties assistance with all or part of that there are still soft costs involved. So if your server hardware is slower than it should be, then all of those maintenance procedures are going to take considerably longer. And if you look at just simply <clears throat> this example I told you about where we're looking at a $5,000 price difference on a server. So the, uh, let, let's just call it the $10,000 server and the $15,000 server, okay? And in the case of the $10,000 server versus the $15,000 server, the pricing differential ends up being speed of the hard drives in the system. Now, that speed of the hard drives really is mostly impactful in times of all of the maintenance operations that the IT human beings would be doing to that equipment. 
So it's not really going to be noticed in terms of the day-to-day end users interacting with files on the file server. Might they notice it? Yeah, they might notice it. And that's absolutely true. But that isn't going to be where the bulk of the cost comes from uh, over that seven-year life cycle of that equipment. The bulk of that cost is going to be either you as an internal person to the company or your external support. Either way, we're talking about human labor soft costs involved. Those soft costs over that seven-year life cycle are, they just, they stack up repeatedly more and more and more because of the speed differential in that server. So even if you look at something as simple as a reboot cycle, you might have a 15-minute reboot cycle for the $15,000 server versus you may have a 30-minute reboot cycle for the $10,000 server. So something as small as a 15-minute differential where somebody has to monitor the fact that that server is rebooting and that it's actually coming up and they have to wait until that process is complete before they can move on to the next step. Well, those server reboot cycles and the speed of them ends up costing you money. And so what I always encourage people to do is to look at, is it really gonna cost me more over that seven years to just pay for the extra $5,000 now, or do I want to just eat those costs long-term? Now there's another interesting aspect to that as well is the slower, if you have a slower server versus a faster server, that's going to impact all kinds of other things as well, such as the recovery time associated with any sort of a disaster whether we're talking about a simple file recovery or something as catastrophic as the operating system on the server fried and it has to be restored. If you had a specific recovery time objective in mind, such as you say, well, it's going to cost the the business $30,000 a day to, to have the server down, then I think you've just justified the extra five grand right there. I mean, if you're going to lose that much money in one day, and I would even argue if you're going to lose that much money over two days, then boy, it sure does sound like you ought to just spend the extra five grand. Because it comes down to a thing of when you're buying that server, you do actually have control over the quality and the speed of that hardware. When you're in a recovery scenario, when you're in a disaster slash outage slash recovery scenario, you no longer have control over the speed of that hardware the hardware itself dictates the speed of that recovery operation. You know, it doesn't matter how good the IT people are. It doesn't matter how good the processes were. There's only just so fast that hardware is going to actually go. And that's going to dictate the majority of the speed of the recovery process. So if you're actually serious about looking at things in terms of what is the impact to the business financially for a specific duration of having said systems down, then that dollar amount needs to get translated into, okay, what does it mean if we were to spend a little bit more money on a better piece of hardware that is going to just be faster? So there's another fallacy I have to bust for you here. And one of these fallacies is about, well, I don't, 
you know, like it's this, it's actually starts with this fallacy where people say, well, I don't really do very much with my computer. And I could say probably for the last 10 years, the reality of the situation has been that what you do with your computer, what the, the demand that you yourself put on the computer is in the vast majority of cases, not the dictating factor for the hardware. I mean, people like myself are a bit of an exception or maybe an architect who, uh, you know, or a high-end engineer that needs specific equipment that has specialty video cards in it, you know, where they, where they are actually really going to put a significant demand on the hardware. But for the vast majority of people, the demand on the hardware is really put upon it by security processes, patching processes, maintenance processes, backup processes. And if you don't have enough horsepower for these processes, there's just going to be an awful lot of things that won't work properly because all of these processes have timeouts. They're designed to – a process will run, and if it doesn't complete by a specific period of time, then uh, it's going to look like it's failed, and that process is going to say, hey, you know what, I need to throw an error here and just stop because something is wrong. So you have to be extremely cognizant of that. And this is an interesting segue into uh, something that I tried to do recently, which was I took a Synology NAS and I put a virtual machine on it. You're supposed to be able to run a server virtual machine on a Synology NAS. Now, this is a pretty high-end Synology NAS. And yes, I did actually get the uh, a server operating system installed on it. But here's the kicker. The performance on that virtual machine that's running on the Synology NAS, despite having 8 gigabytes of RAM allocated to it and four processor cores, right? This, now, if I, I, the reason I give you those statistics is because if I was to put up a virtual machine on a standard Dell PowerEdge server running on uh, Windows 2016 with Hyper-V, and I gave that same exact operating system four processor cores and eight gig of RAM, it would scream super fast. It would be great. So then, why is it that you allocate the same resources to a virtual machine running on a Synology NAS and it runs so poorly that the security agent can't even check in effectively and do updates? I mean, it's that bad. Well, <laughs> this goes back to what I said in the beginning, which is that sometimes you actually just really need server hardware. When you try to do it cheaper, it really isn't going to be cheaper because you look at it and say, well, can you even achieve the objective that you had, which was, can I get a server that actually functions properly that I can put my backup software on, that I can put my security agent on, and that it's going to perform adequately, and I'm going to be able to do my maintenance functions in some sort of a reasonable time period. So, if the answer is that, well, no, the performance of it is just not there, that you can't really achieve those objectives, then you have to write that solution off entirely. So uh, here's another interesting example of why it is that sometimes you just really need to spend the money on a, a real server. 
I do a lot of surveillance systems and there are appliances. Now I'm going to caution you. I'm not talking about digital video recorders, little DVRs, which are just the most useless pieces of garbage I've ever seen out there. I mean, they're just, they're terrible. DVRs, they're, you really can't secure them. They don't scale well. I mean, you're not going to run 48 cameras off of a DVR. They just don't have any of the level of the sophistication of capability of what a real video management system is supposed to have. Okay, so just take the DVR thing and just throw it out the window because it's just garbage. It's, it's not a viable option. So what we're talking about here is now the comparison of do you buy an appliance from the manufacturer of the video management system from the VMS where they say, hey, it's a pre-built, pre-canned, pre-engineered system for your VMS. Here you go, ready to go. And let's say they want $15,000 for it. Okay. Now you're going to run into a lot of problems, I think, with that because you still have to ask the questions, which is, for my $15,000, am I getting a seven-year warranty? And I'll tell you, absolutely, the answer is no. The best you can hope to get for seven for $15,000 plus whatever the extended warranty is, is five years. That's it. If you buy this thing, it doesn't come with a server operating system on it. It comes with Windows 10... Uh, IoT Enterprise on it. So you could actually add it to, the, to a domain, but because it has IoT Enterprise on it, then what that does is it limits your ability to install applications on it. So it's not even real Windows 10 real. And you should know that Windows 10 cannot link aggregate network cards. So we're talking about something where you're trying to run anywhere from say 35 to 50 cameras coming into a video management system do you really think that how well that's going to work over a single one gigabit non-redundant, you know, internet connection or <clears throat> internet, con not, not an internet connection, but just a network connection in general? Because I can tell you flat out, <laughs> we're not talking about 1080p video anymore. We're now talking about 2 megapixel, 3 megapixel, 5 megapixel, 8 megapixel, and in some cases 4K video. Okay, so I don't care if you're using Zipstream or H.264 compression, whatever it is, we're still talking about a ton of data. And that data has to be able to have enough pipe to get through. So how do you get all that data through only one little tiny, tiny network card on a one gigabit connection? Generally, it doesn't work out real well. So now we're, we've now established that there's two things that won't ever even make it so that you can manage that thing effectively. Well, number one, it has Windows 10 operating system on it, which means you can't actually link aggregate network cards. You know, and of course, Windows 10 IoT, meaning you're going to be limited on what other apps you can install on the thing. Uh, and this could, these could just simply be maintenance and monitoring applications. And here's the other thing. Let's say the underlying piece of hardware is actually a Dell PowerEdge server, so yay, clap for that. But because it has Windows 10 on it, 
now you cannot install Open Managed Server Administrator on it, which is the necessary component for monitoring that hardware. You need to have OMSA installed on the operating system so that it can talk to the underlying hardware. And then when you put a monitoring agent on that server operating system or on the operating system, it's going to be looking into Windows event logs and picking up those events and sending you the notifications for those things as needed. So if you can't get OMSA installed because it doesn't have a server operating system because it has Windows 10 on it, well, what is the point of spending $15,000 for an appliance that's supposedly pre-manufactured to save you money, but yet now you can't monitor it. And, <laughs> oh, and it, it doesn't come with an iDRAC Enterprise either. So now I'm not really even sure how you're supposed to get your, uh, your firmware updates on there effectively uh, if you don't have iDRAC Enterprise. I mean, just all of your... You know, we're talking about the iDRAC Enterprise is basically a $350 one-time purchase piece of equipment in that server. But it doesn't come with it. Could you do it as an add-on? Sure, I guess you could. But if you don't have that, now you're talking about exploding your human labor costs, the soft costs for that solution. So... Well, when all's said and done, this analysis that I made on the appliance versus you just build your own server, build your own server wins out uh, head and shoulders above. And so be very, very careful about these, about buying any sort of pre-made appliances. And I'll talk more about this in another show specifically to that topic, but I hope you enjoyed the show for the day.